Hi. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Uh, is this on? Thank you. Um, the idea of these fallacies, mm -hmm. uh, are they effective in a one-on-one -on -one witnessing, evangelizing scenario? People will embrace them and actually be reasonable with the things you're saying? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, you, can't, you can't make anybody believe anything. But you can, you can reason with them and you can say, well, you know, and you have to, of course, you have to do it graciously. And sometimes, but, but some, you know, it, it really depends on the situation. Some, sometimes I'm talking with somebody and other people are listening. And in that situation, um, I, I might expose the foolishness of this person for their, for their sakes. So there, there's, a, you know, my goal might shift a little bit. And there's some people that, like if I'm on a one-on-one -on -one situation and the person is just being irrational, um, there's no reason to continue that. But if there are other people watching, I might anyway, just to, just to demonstrate that. But yeah, I've had people that have, you know, have pointed out, well, you know, that's actually an equivocation fallacy because evolution is being used in two different senses, and this type of change doesn't prove that type of change. As long as you explain it, yeah, it can be very effective. Thank you. My pleasure. Hi. So I wanted to know your opinion on life on other planets. Like, do you think there could be or there is... Okay, I don't think there is. I suppose there could be, but I think uh, it, that a lot of the motivation for that comes from an evolutionary mindset. People think, well, life evolved on Earth, so it's a big universe, probably evolved elsewhere. When we read scripture, we find the Earth is very special. It's made on day one. All the other planets are made on day four. It's kind of interesting. God spent five of the six days working the Earth, creating it, making it right for life, creating vegetation on day three, creating uh, water animals and flying animals on day five, and land animals on day six. We never read about him creating life on other worlds. Not that, not that that proves it, but Isaiah 45, 18 says, God formed the earth to be inhabited. And so the earth is very special. It's designed for life. And so I personally don't expect to find life out in space. And that's something where my secular colleagues disagree with me. So, so far, I've, I've been right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, doctor. Uh, I have a, I'd like to get your opinion on this, if you have one. Um, to some of the people in here, this may sound like it's science fiction, but DNA splicing and what they're going to do to human beings in the future, yeah. and are we going to, those who are going to get these DNA uh, manipulated drugs or injections, are they going to be human? And an awful lot of people that are Christian science, not Christian scientists, but scientists that are Christian mm. in the medical field are saying transhuman. Yeah, this is, a, this is a very serious concern, and it's something that, I mean, the, the World Economic Forum has stated that's their intention. They want transhumans. Um, they want to augment people, change your DNA. Uh, this is a very, very dangerous thing to do. It's something we have to be very careful because I'm not anti-research into DNA or, or even gene editing. If, if, see, the goal, though, the goal has to be to glorify God, and therefore it has to be to get... Uh, to increase our health, to make us more the way God created us to be. But if you say, well, I want to you know, have wings and feathers you know, so I can fly everywhere, that's not the way God created us to be. And I think people are going to find, uh, we, we still, we've mapped the human genome. We, don't, we still don't understand what everything does, though. And one of the things we're finding is that a lot of these genes interact with each other. And so you can't, you can't just insert a gene, you know, well, this, this gene produces feathers in birds, so I'm going to stick that in. It might not do that in a human because of the way their differences. So there's tremendous, there's, there's potential to help disease, 
And so I'd, I'd like to see, you know, Christians that are going into this field, that's a very good thing. Uh, healing disease, Jesus healed the sick. That's a good thing. If we can say, oh this, oh, this gene has gone defective, and we can fix it by going it back that way to the way God originally designed it, that's a good thing. If we want to just change it for the sake of changing it, that's going to be a very bad thing, and it will probably react in ways that, that people are not expecting and not for the better. So that's something we have to really be concerned about. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, Dr. Lyle. I uh, currently am studying biology in undergrad, and I may be using big words that many people are here not familiar with, but you can reiterate the question. Um, Personally, being a creationist myself, uh, I get this question a lot, so I would ask you, uh, how would you respond to when someone asks, how would genotypic variation in sexually reproducing organisms not lead to evolution through the recombination of gametes? Okay, and the answer is because the... Uh, information is not present in any combination to make any kind of other kind. And so, for example, uh, see, we, we all have two sets of DNA, and you have different, you know, you get one, you, basically you, for each gene, you get one from, uh, on one set, you get one from dad, you get one from mom. And God did it that way because it's, uh, it produces tremendous variety. The number of human beings you could produce, theoretically, that are unique from just two people is greater than the number of atoms in the universe because of the way it's, they combine that way. But the problem is there's no combination, for example, that will produce a human with feathers. That information is not present in the human genome. And so um, merely uh, having uh, a great degree of heterozygosity where you have two different genes from each, from each um, parent, that does give you a variety, but only the information that was programmed into the original humans. So all the traits that everyone here has, in terms of the information, all of that was in Adam and Eve. Okay, so the, the traits for brown hair and so on, Brown, brown eyes or green eyes or whatever. That was all present in Adam and Eve. Some of those instructions have been lost. And so we think, for example, that, that red hair is due to a mutation. So that's where, where a, a gene has been damaged, basically. And so you get a different trait. But it's not, in, in order to turn humans into something else, you'd have to increase the information in the genome. And combi- just, re- just changing the combinations doesn't do that. It doesn't add any brand new information to the genome. Okay, thank you. Sure. Is the speed of light decaying? It's a good question. We think not. That's something we've looked into. It was a good question to ask. Um, and uh, some creationists decades ago thought maybe that was the answer to distant starlight and so on. It turns out the speed of light is not like other speeds. It's, it's very different. It's kind of a universal speed limit. And it's related to other things in nature, like the relationship between electric fields and magnetic fields is determined amazingly by the speed of light. Um, the relationship between energy and mass is determined by the speed of light. And so if you change the speed of light, the speed of light in vacuum, if you change the speed of light in vacuum where it travels at its fastest speed, uh, in a substance it'll slow down a little bit, that's okay. But in, in vacuum it travels at a, at a speed of 186,000 miles per second, it's very fast. And if that were to change, that would mean the relationship between electric fields and magnetic fields would change. It would mean the energy of everything in the universe or the mass would change, and we don't see any evidence of that. So we think there's good reasons to think that the speed of light has always been constant. Then can you explain why the universe looks as old as it does? Okay, I don't think the universe does look old. Um, you can't see age. Age is a concept. It's the present time minus the time of origins. That's a, that's a concept. You can't see it. Now, we, we, informally, we talk about seeing age when we say, well, that person looks a certain age. But what we're, we're really using language metaphorically there. You can't see age. What we see in humans are what we call proxies for age, okay? So a person who has gray hair, probably older than somebody who doesn't, you know, who has 
you know, deep colored hair and so on. There's certain traits that people tend to acquire as they, you know, maybe somebody has a lot of liver spots or something. Uh, those, are certain, those are proxies for age. And so we can informally say a person looks a certain age because we know what proxies um, are associated with a certain age because we, we've had experience with lots of people. But you can't do that with the universe because we've only got the one. You can't say, well, of all these universes, ours looks like this one that's you know, one billion years old or whatever, because we, we only have the one universe and it looks the way it looks. So now if you're asking about distant starlight, that's a different issue. <laughs> uh, if somebody else wants to ask about that, that's fine, but that'll take, it takes a little longer to explain that. But yeah, I think the universe uh, does not look old, it looks the way it is, and there's a lot of things in the universe that can't be billions of years old, like blue stars. Blue stars can't last billions of years, and they're everywhere. So that's just one example. I heard this one theory that um, we are still technically in the seventh day of creation, and I mm. wanted to know what you thought of that. It's false. I'm glad you asked. Um, because the, the, the days, we know they're ordinary days because they had an evening and a morning, and there's a number associated with them. Okay, the first day, the second day. Whenever you have that in the Hebrew language, a number with it, it means an ordinary day, an earth rotation or, or the light portion thereof. And the seventh day has a number with it, the, the seventh day. In fact, it has the, the definite article with it. It's the seventh day. And so that marks it as an ordinary day. The Hebrew word for day, yom, can mean a period of time longer than 24 hours, but not when it ha has like a, a number with it, like the seventh. And so one, one of the reasons people get confused about that is because, is because God rested on the seventh day, and God is still resting in a sense, in the sense that he's not creating new kinds of life. But that doesn't mean the seventh day continued. It just means the rest continued beyond that. So the seventh day was an ordinary day. Thank you. Sure. Jason. Hi. Um, dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. We see all different types of dinosaurs, and they, they portray some as herbivores and carnivores. But like the, the ones that they portray, like the T-Rex, for instance, we know from fossils that they exist. Do you believe that, that they're like vicious as, as, as they're portrayed, like they're, they're distorted? Would you believe that their DNAs were tampered with by like Nephilim or fallen angels? Or do you think that they would be a real creation from God? I think they're real creations. And we need to remember that when we find it, we find fossils of them. Sometimes we find just one fossil. Occasionally we'll find an entirely articulated skeleton. That's not as common, but it happens. And so they're real. And we, that gives us some idea what they look like. Uh, there, are, there are some occasions where we find impressions of the actual skin. And so we know they had, we had, they had scales. And so that tells us these were probably reptiles in terms of their classification. So they're real animals that existed. I don't think their DNA was tampered with or anything like that. Uh, their DNA is degraded now, so we will never be able to resurrect dinosaurs like you see in Jurassic Park, unfortunately, mm. as cool as that would be. And uh, we need to remember, too, that when we, when we see Hollywood fiction like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, they, they make dinosaurs very terrifying because it makes for a good movie. That's what it comes down to. They're not interested in telling us the truth, not that we, not that we really know. You can't tell how an animal behaved from its fossils, but we do know that when God originally created everything, behold, it was very good, and so that means that dinosaurs were very good originally. We also know that originally everything was vegetarian, including dinosaurs. Uh, so, they, so yes, that T-Rex was originally vegetarian. That's one of the things that I talk about in my DVD, Dinosaurs in the Bible, or if you're able to come uh, tomorrow night to uh, um, uh, Calvary Chapel, South, South Jersey, I'll be talking about that kind of stuff, but yeah. Thank you. Sure. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming. I was uh, just recommending to a friend um, Ultimate Proof of Creation, which I really enjoyed. And he very quickly picked up and asked, um, well, how can you like 
expect the unbeliever to assume God, or how can you assume God when talking to an unbeliever who doesn't? Um, can you briefly? Well, that's kind of the point of the book, right? I mean, you, you read the book, and I've made an argument in there. Okay. Um, but as a Christian, I do have to point out everyone believes in God, even people who say they don't believe in God. Somebody says, I'm an atheist. I would say, respectfully, no, you're not. Because the Bible says you, that, God, that the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's Romans 1.18. And so the Bible's very clear. Everyone knows God. People don't want to know God. Because God doesn't, the way, the way God expects them to live is not the way they want to live. People are very happy to make up a God that will let them live the way they want to live. But the biblical God says, no, this is the way you need to live. Okay, if you're going to be righteous, if you're going to be in my presence, you need to be like me. You need to reflect my character. And that's what people don't like. And so atheists work very hard to convince themselves and others that they don't believe in God, that they, do, that they in fact do believe in. And so what I would do with a person like that is I would say, well, you, you claim to be an atheist, but in fact you show that you do know God in your heart of hearts by the way you behave. And one example I might say is, for example, you think that we should be logical in the way we argue. Is that right? And if he says no, then I say, well, then we should be. Well, if you, if you disagree with that, then you agree with it. <laughs> right? Because if he rejects logic, then I can say anything I want. Um, but on the other hand, if he says, yeah, we should be logical, and I say, well, there you go. Laws of logic, as I, as I briefly went over this evening, laws of logic only make sense if they're reflections of the way God thinks. Otherwise, they make no sense at all. In a secular world, you can't account for that. So the way you behave shows that in your heart of hearts, you really do know God, but you've rejected him, and I would like to encourage you to repent and, and trust in him because he'd be willing to forgive you of your sin and, and save you. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is in regards to like apologetic methodology. Mm -hmm. Like you take the presuppositional approach. I do. Um, like I'm familiar with Greg Bonson and mm -hmm. Van Til, guys like that. So how would you answer like people that come from like a evidentialist, classicalist, and they often like accuse presuppositionalist of being like they call it fideism. Like mm -hmm. you're just saying, oh, our answer is God. So you're not really like using logic, so mm -hmm. if you've like come across that a lot. I have, yeah. And the ironic thing about that claim, um, so the presuppositionalist says, I can know with absolute certainty that God exists, it's the biblical God, and the Bible is true, because that's a necessary precondition for knowing anything else. Mm -hmm. So I can demonstrate that that is true. The classical and evidentialist apologetics argue that God is very likely true, that the Bible is very likely. And then you get the fideist who says, we can't really know anything, but I'm just going to jump on it and believe that God exists. Now, of those three positions, which one is closer to fideism? Isn't it the evidentialist and classical? Because they're, they're saying, well, you can't know with certainty. We're as opposite as fideism as you can possibly get. Because my argument is God, I can demonstrate objectively that God does exist, that he's the biblical God. I do that by a transcendental argument, which it takes a little while for people to get their heads around that. But it's as opposite of fideism as you can get, because I claim I can know with certainty that God does exist. And I think there are verses that indicate that. Uh, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Bible says we can know that with certainty. And so that suggests to me that it's the presuppositional approach. I think there are other arguments I could make, too, that, that the presuppositional approach really is very biblical because it rightly puts God on the throne. The other methods, the evidentialist and classical apologists, um, assume that the unbeliever is being truthful when he says he doesn't know God. The presuppositional method says, actually, you do know God and you're lying. And with all respect, I, and I'm, I've been there too, we've all been the fool at one point, but right now you're being foolish. And I would like to encourage you to repent, and here's, here's, reasons, here's the reason why. 
Uh, so I think that it's as opposite of fideism as you can get. I highly recommend Bonson and Van Til as well. So yeah. yeah thank you. Sure. Um, what are your thoughts on interplanetary travel? And okay. more in regard of, is it something that we should pursue? It's a neat idea. It's, uh, of course, we've already done it in a very limited sense. We did send people to the moon in, in 69 and in 1771, and hopefully we're going to do that again in a few years. That's the plan. Um, I wasn't around for the previous one, so I'd really like to see that. Uh, but people say, well, you know, this next step is Mars. Woo, different category. Uh, you know, the, if the, let's see if the moon's distance is like that, Mars would be... Like over by that piano. I mean, it's, it's much bigger. It's, the distance is, out, is outrageous compared to uh, the moon. And when you're in space, see the astronauts that are on the space station, they're orbiting only 200 miles above the Earth. They're relatively close. That's inside Earth's, mostly inside Earth's magnetic field. Earth's magnetic field protects us from cosmic radiation that's damaging to our DNA. And when you're on, when you're on the moon, you're sometimes in that field, sometimes outside of it, because the, the field gets pushed out like a, kind of like a comet's tail, and sometimes the moon is in it, sometimes it's not. Um, so the astronauts on the moon occasionally get a little protection, but they weren't there very long. They were there for a, you know, a few days, and then they came back. A trip to Mars would take a minimum of six months. And that, my, main, my main concern would be the radiation, because they're outside of Earth's magnetic field. Mars doesn't have much of a magnetic field, so even when they landed, they'd still be exposed to this radiation. It has a really thin atmosphere. So radiation's the big concern. I don't know how they're going to figure out how to get around that. They might. They might think of something I haven't thought of. But that's the big thing at the moment. And so uh, is it something we should look into? I think it's exciting, and, and, and God put curiosity in us to go out and explore his universe. So there's nothing wrong with examining those options, but I don't know if we're going to see people on Mars. I'd love to see that. It'd be very exciting. Um, but we, we've had a lot of success sending robots there, and that's, that's a good way to do it, because they don't care about radiation. So uh, we even got a helicopter to fly on Mars recently, which is just awesome. I think that's amazing. So um, hopefully more unmanned missions. I don't know if we'll see a manned mission. Yeah. Hello. Hi. I was curious to how old approximately you think the universe is. About 6,000 years old. Thank you. Sure. And in case anyone's wondering, that's just based on the fact that God created in six days, and you add up the genealogies. The Bible indicates about 4,000 years between Adam and Christ's earthly ministry, which is about 2,000 years ago, so that's where we get that. Can't put an exact date on it, but that gets you in the ballpark anyway. Yeah. Hi. Um, what do you say to people, maybe not an atheist, but an agnostic, who will come back with, well, how can you believe everything that the Bible says just because the Bible says it? Well, if it's the Word of God, how could you not, right? Because if, if God exists and if he is who he claims he is in his Word, then he can do anything. It's not a problem. I mean, if he, he can speak the universe into existence, it's not a problem for him to raise the dead or to create Adam and breathe life into him. Uh, the Bible indicates that God is all-powerful, and therefore there's nothing that's, that's beyond his ability. And because the Bible, in my view, the Bible is a prerequisite for reasoning because it gives us a basis for things like laws of logic. And I would say to that person, you, you believe in laws of logic, don't you? You believe we ought to be reasonable and rational? Well, yeah. Well, that only makes sense if the Bible's true. Because if, if God is the way that the Bible says he is, if he's revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture, then we can have knowledge because God's revealed some truth to us. And so the Bible actually makes knowledge of other things possible. Mm-hmm. Your, your thoughts on uh, Irondale and the recent discovery of that? So, yeah, it's, a, it's the most distant star that we've seen. 
and, uh, and kudos for them naming after a Lord of the Rings character. So that's, that's great. Um, I haven't looked into it too much. I just know it's a very distant star that they've been able to image via gravitational lensing. Uh, when light passes by a galaxy, it gets bent by the, the gravity of all the billions of stars in that galaxy. And that kind of, fo- it kind of acts like a magnifying glass. It makes the star brighter than it would be otherwise. And that's how they've been able to see that. I think it was with the Hubble that they uh, were able to see that. So that's all I know about it at the moment, is it's, a very, it's the most distant star we've, we've seen. Thank you. Sure. Could these um, like laws of logic and fallacies, I think it is, mm-hmm. be applied to a debate? Oh, of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of their main uses, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because in a debate, if you commit a fallacy, that's it, right? The whole point of a debate is to show that you have good logical reasons for your position. And so if you don't, then that, that, you, that's how you lose the debate. Hi, thanks for Hi. coming. Sure. Um, so I actually went to high school here, and so all my science classes were from a biblical worldview. Wonderful. And it was great. Um, and I remember thinking that the evolutionary theory is very cyclical. Like, I remember reading a chapter on, well, we discover how old fossils are by where they are in the layer. And mm-hmm. then the next paragraph was, well, we know how old the layer based on what fossils are in there. Mm-hmm. And so it was very much like that. So my question is, do scientists who say that the Earth is billions of years old, is one, their tools incorrect, or two, is it because of the flood that, that, that caused the Earth to age quicker? And then also the fossils of, you mentioned that there are no fossils of like the missing link and things like that, but we have the chart of like how you get to monkey from mm-hmm. man. So literally there's no in-betweeners. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A great book on that, by the way. It's um, by Martin Lubinow. It's called Bones of Contention. And he looks through all the examples of of, uh, everything we find in the fossil record is very clearly a non-human primate or a human being. Mm. Very clearly. In terms of the ribcage structure, human beings are unique. The way our shoulders are designed, the the structure of our teeth is different from that of any ape. And uh, and he goes through and and demonstrates all those things. So that's a great resource, um, at least for human, supposed human evolution. Yeah, you'll see see them in textbooks, but you don't see them in the the actual fossils, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what's interesting. Um, So regarding why is it that that secularists believe in the millions of years, you need to understand that any evolutionist has to, because even they know that on a 6,000-year time scale, evolution is preposterous. Now, it's equally preposterous in 4.5 billion years, but you think, man, that's a lot of time. Anything can happen. So, right? so it, it, evolution requires the billions of years. Mm-hmm. And it, Now, the billions of years idea came first, historically, 1700s, when people started arguing that, and um, a lot of them were very deliberate. Um, uh, James Hutton, Charles Lyell, I, I can show you quotes where they wanted to divorce science from Moses, indicating they wanted to see before that, it was, it was, most scientists were Christians. It was, it, they would look to the Bible to try and interpret data, and they got really good results because of that. And that bothered those that were not Christians, and so they wanted to say, no, we're going to reinterpret this data. And they started interpreting um, geology in light of a belief called uniformitarianism, which is the belief that rates and conditions throughout history have been more or less like they are today. And therefore, if a, if a canyon is eroding at one inch per year today, then it's always been that way, and you add up the inches, and you, know, you get potentially millions of years. And so that it's, it's motivated by the belief in uniformitarianism. Hmm. But that, that um, of necessity, rejects the worldwide flood. 
and the flood, it's not that it ages things faster, but it does cause things like canyons to erode much faster. The runoff from the flood formed canyons very, very quickly. And we know today that when there's a catastrophe like that, like when Mount St. Helens erupted and it cut out a canyon, 140th the scale of the Grand Canyon, in a matter of hours, we know it doesn't take billions of years for those things to form. Mm-hmm. With regard to the fossils dating the rocks and the rocks the fossils, they kind of get around that now because they would say, well, we're, what we do is we've, we've radiometrically date rocks that's or below this, and you can only date certain kinds of rocks, and you can't really date them, right? It's a, it's a, it's a guess about the age of the rock, but based on radioactive uh, decay. But they'll say, well, we date this rock that's below the fossil, and this one that's above it, and so that pins the age of the fossil. What they don't tell you is there's a tremendous amount of inconsistency, mm-hmm. even in the published literature. You know, you go, this lab says it's this many billion years old, and this one gives a completely different answer, and so on. Mm-hmm. And we've also sent rocks of known age, like when Mount St. Helens, it created brand new igneous rocks. We sent them to the lab uh, to have them dated, which normally you wouldn't do because it's expensive. But we wanted to test the method. And sure enough, they came back at, with estimated ages of hundreds of thousands to millions of years on rocks that we know are brand new. Mm-hmm. So we know the method doesn't, we know the method doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I just had one more question. Okay. What's up with Pluto? Because <laughs> I grew up that it was like, you know, one of the last planets. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm in college and they're saying that it's not a planet yeah. anymore. And I actually felt... <laughs> kind of bad about that it's, up, isn't it? it's like it's like one of my planets and then and now it could be a planet again but they're saying it's a just a meteor like they're now cl- they've reclassified it as a dwarf planet okay. okay so it is a planet now it's a dwarf planet okay it's which is not a planet i guess and it's not the first time in history that this has happened um basically what what happened when when pluto was pluto was discovered in 1930 and when they first found it, it's, it's way out there. I mean, it's, it's beyond Neptune. Mm-hmm. Its orbit briefly comes inside Neptune's, as it was between 79 and 99. But um, other than that, it's, it's way out there. And you can't see any size to it. It, just, it looks like a point, a star-like, right? And so there, was, there were some guesses about, well, how big is it? And the initial guess, and it, it, it's hard to tell when you can't see any size. And so they try to estimate it based on its brightness and how reflective they assume the surface is. And they assumed it was very dark, and therefore it must be big in order to be as bright as it is. Okay? And since then, they've, they've realized, oh, it's actually fairly bright, which means it's smaller. So when they first discovered it, they thought maybe it was as big as Earth. That's pretty respectable. And they said, well, okay, maybe as big as Mars. Mars is about half the size of the Earth. Okay. And then down and down and about the size of Earth's moon. Ooh, it's pretty small. Smaller than Mercury. It's smaller than the planet Mercury. Oh. And we now know it's two-thirds the size of Earth's moon. So our moon is bigger than Pluto, okay? It's small. And, but the real kicker was it, it stayed a planet because it was the only one of its kind until the, ni- I think it was in the 90s, they started finding other objects about the same size as Pluto, also at that distance. So, and some of them were almost as big as Pluto was. Do we add those as new planets? Because there's like 20 of those. And then they found one that they thought was bigger, called Eris. And uh, they said, well, we can't have these new objects that are, if one of them is bigger than Pluto, it doesn't make sense to say that's not a planet, whereas Pluto is a planet, right? So they said, do we add these 20 new planets, or do we just drop Pluto down and make it a new, you know, make it the largest member of this new class of object? And they decided to go with the latter option. And and think of the children, right? They they don't want to memorize 30 planets, right? So (laughs) that's probably the right call. So you don't have to know about Eris and Makimaki and Haumea, because those would all be planets if Pluto were. And it's not the first time in history that happened when the first asteroids were discovered in the 1800s. 1801 was the first asteroid series was discovered orbiting in between Mars and Jupiter. It was classified as a planet. And it was very small. It was smaller than the moon. It's only 600 miles across. And then they found another, they found four asteroids between 16, or 1801 and 
whatever. And then by the 1850s, they found like 20 or 30 asteroids. And what, we're going to have 20 or 30 planets? No. Let's classify these, since they're very small, as a new type of object, and they eventually be called, were called asteroids. Same situation with Pluto. The only difference is Pluto was considered a planet for 75 years. Mm-hmm. And so most people, their whole lives have grown up with that. Yeah. So it's a little harder to make the transition. But it's just a, cl- it's just a classification scheme. It's doing, it's, it hasn't, the, the object hasn't changed. It's still doing exactly what God created it to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sure. Uh, three quick questions. Um, uh, how do bones become fossils? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. And then also, um, how do they determine the age of the fossil if it's not determined by you know where it's located? Okay. And why would different scientists disagree about the age of the fossil? Okay. So the way a fossil become the way a fossil forms is uh, it, it's, it's, it, there are other way, there are several ways to do it, but primarily in water, minerals move through the water and they fill in the holes in the bone. Bones are porous; they're light because they have a lot of open space in them, mm-hmm. and that makes them very the way they're designed. It's it's brilliant. It's the way they have these cross structures that makes them very very strong and yet light. Fossils are heavy because the minerals have moved in and filled in all the holes in the bone. And so there's different minerals that'll do that, um, um, calcite and so, so, some others that'll fill in and, make, and it makes it heavy. Now regarding how they try to estimate the age of the fossils, what they do, because you can't, you can't use radiometric dating on, on fossils. Radiometric dating is supposed to tell you how old certain rocks are. It only works on igneous rocks. Igneous rocks are rocks that are formed by heat, like from a volcano, that would be an igneous rock. And so what they'll do is they'll find a fossil that's buried in the sediment, sedimentary rock layers, which are not datable, mm-hmm. and they'll, but they'll find an igneous rock maybe below it, and they'll find another igneous rock above it. And they'll radiometrically date that rock, and they'll radiometrically date that rock, and they'll say, well, the fossil must be in between those two ages. So, but, so, so yeah. they can't actually date the fossil Correct. itself, it's just where Correct. it's located. Yeah, yeah and, it, and the rocks that are surrounding it. They will try to date those rocks, okay. so yeah. And, and, but again, they come up with different answers because depending on, on which laboratory you send it to, you're going to get a different result. There's, there's a great amount of discordance in um, the, the, age, the supposed age estimate of a given rock. Depends on what laboratory you send it to, depends on what, which method you use. It's, it's clearly not a good um, indi- indicator of, of actual age. And we think there are reasons for that, which okay. we can go into or not, but yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. I, uh... Do you take your presentations to secular colleges? And, what's, uh, yeah. and, and the reason I ask is uh, about 20 years ago, I saw Dr. Behe give a presentation at Princeton University. He took about six, five different things of the body and explained them. At the end of it, he didn't go into intelligent design, but that's what he believes. He didn't go into it, but it was so overwhelming that the students gave him a really good hand, but uh, by uh, the question and answer, a uh, professor of biology at Princeton got up and really went after him. Mm-hmm. But it was so apparent he was going after his philosophy and not the, the facts of the argument. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if you have had that happen to you if you go to colleges. Yeah, I do when I'm invited, and I'm not invited very often to secular schools. But occasionally I am, and it's usually through a Christian group there. I also heard that that professor was not really received really well years later because of his reaction to Dr. Behe. Well, and, and appropriately so, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we need to be respectful in our dialogues. Um, yeah, I've, I've done several secular universities. Um, the response, it's always interesting. It's usually mixed. Um, uh, some, early on, early on in my um, 
when I was doing ministry and wasn't terribly well known, I'd get a lot more pushback than I do now. Now people don't seem to want to argue with me as much. Um, maybe they disagree, but they don't, want to, they don't want to stand up and try to defend their position. It, it does occasionally happen, but not as often. Not as often. So it's a mixed response. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Duff, for this opportunity you've given us. Um, you were mentioning Mount St. Helens, and since we're talking about archaeology and geology, I can understand, my neighbor and I were having a discussion, I can understand back in the day of the flood with all the interaction of the water, the sedimentary rock, and Mount St. Helens showing that it can happen real fast. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand all that. What I have never understood, maybe you can clear up this mystery, well, we're talking about more recent civilizations. I was in Israel in 2009, mm -hmm. and I remember a tour guide saying, um, uh, at some point the Muslims, uh, Saladin, came in, and they tried to destroy the Jewish heritage here and destroy their buildings. And what they did was, instead, they dug up uh, civilizations that were beyond that, and they exposed more Jewish history. But what I want to know is, how did these civilizations get down there to begin with? <laughs> Because, I mean, I look around my house for the last 20 years, and I'm saying, I don't see the dirt building up around my house. Yeah. How, how does this happen other than, you know, some kind of water interaction or like Mount St. Helens? Maybe you could shed yeah. some light on that. Well, either of those are possible. And then other, some of these areas, too, are we have a different climate here. Yeah, we have grass everywhere. We have a very humid climate. Um, some of these places are very barren. And those are the places where the dirt literally does build up year after year. The, the locations of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, one of those two has been excavated. They found Sodom, and I think it's Sodom, and excavated it. And it is under dirt now, uh, but that's because it's in a part of the world that's kind of a desert. And so the, the dirt does kind of build up there. So that's one possibility. But you can have local floods, too, where, that, where they'll come in and, and bury. Uh, that can happen, too. I'm not an expert on archaeology, but um, I, I, I am always intrigued when they go in and they find these things. They always end up verifying what the Bible teaches, so it's always very exciting. Yeah. I just had a follow-up question to the uh, discovery of that most distant star. Mm -hmm. um, if the universe is 6,000 years old, does that necessarily mean that that star is at most 6,000 light years away? Good question. The answer is no. Um, it turns out that... Um, this is what we call the starlight, the starlight issue, or the starlight. Sometimes it's called the starlight problem. I don't think it's a problem, but it's hard. The problem is it's hard to explain it in a way that's that uh, doesn't involve uh, a lot of knowledge of physics. So, but it turns out the speed of light is is a very unusual thing. The only thing we can actually measure is what's called the round trip speed of light. That's the time it takes for the light to go out, hit a mirror, and come back. Um, that's the only thing that's objectively measurable. The one-way speed is determined by how we choose to synchronize clocks. Synchronize meaning they read the same time at the same time. Because in order to, de to determine a one-way speed, you have to have a clock here to send out the light to know when it starts, and you have to have a clock over there to know when it arrives. And in order to get an accurate estimate of the, the one-way speed, those two clocks would have to be exactly synchronized. Now, normally what we do to synchronize clocks is we assume that the speed of light's the same that way as it is this way, and we use that assumption to, synchronize, to set the clocks, and then when we measure the speed of light, we find, lo and behold, it's the same that way as that way, but that's what we assumed to synchronize the clocks. It turns out you don't have to do that, and Einstein realized that and wrote about it, and, and scientists throughout the 20th century have written about it. It turns out you can synchronize clocks such that the light, when it's going out, uh, takes a longer time to get there, and when it comes back, it's instantaneous. Or, or the reverse. So these, these are called synchrony conventions. 
The bottom line is the one-way speed of light is not actually an objective property of the universe. It's something we choose, and that tells us how to define what now means at a distance. And I'm going to suggest that the way the light gets here is because the Bible is using what we would call, I would call it an anisotropic synchrony convention. Anisotropic means different in different directions. And when the speed of light is tra traveling toward an observer, it's effectively instantaneous. So that light takes no time at all to get from that star to the earth. And I'm not saying the other conventions are wrong, but I am saying the Bible uses that convention because all ancient cultures did. It wasn't until the, at least the late 1600s that people even thought of using any other um, definition. So in, in, using that synchrony convention, we are currently seeing the universe in real time. And it takes no time at all for the light to get from those galaxies to the earth. Is there any useful way to determine how far that star actually is away then? Yeah, the distance we can get. It's the speed of light that it's the speed of light in one direction that can never be objectively measured. It's in fact defined, and that's called the conventionality thesis. If you want to look it up on the internet, the conventionality thesis or the conventionality of distant simultaneity. There's, a, there's actually a number of articles on it. Um, there's a book on it by Max Jammer that's brilliant, uh, called uh, "Concepts of Simultaneity from Antiquity to Einstein and Beyond." Very well written book. It summarizes the literature over the years, because a lot people find that very counterintuitive, and some people have tried to argue that, well, no, the speed of light in one direction can be measured, and here's, here's my thought experiment that'll do it. There's always a flaw, always, every time, and usually the next, the next article then is the refutation of that one. But, but the distances we know, and that's there's, there's, based on good science, there's a number of different ways to do it. If you wanted to find out more about that, look up the cosmic distance ladder, the cosmic distance ladder, and that'll show you how we uh, determine distances, because the distances are so extreme that no one method works for them all. But, so we use one method for nearby objects, for, but fortunately they overlap. So we use this method out to here, and then there's another method that works from here to here, and another one from there to there. Yeah, and so we got the distances. Pretty deep subject, though. It is, yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Lila. I heard your answer before about uh, life in the universe, mm -hmm. um, life on other planets. I was curious uh, to know if you had a theory about the, um, the pill-shaped craft and things that have come to light in recent years, on, caught on Navy radar and things like that. Do you mm -hmm. have a, a theory about what's going on there? Yeah, I, the, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to give a specific answer because I think it's different for each case, but, I, but I've seen some where I'm like, oh, I know what... <laughs> I know what that is because I've had those same, see I take pictures um, of, of astronomical objects with a CCD and there are certain artifacts that creep in. When you overexpose the image it'll form a, a kind of a, like a bar on the instrument where it saturates the pixels surrounding that. And uh, because of the way the camera's turning and these, there's, there's one where it looks, like, it looks like a UFO that's turning like that and I'm like, that's what that is because the camera in the, in the um, military plane is turning, but it's, it's adjusting the image so that it's upright to the, to the pilots. And so the, the, the angle of that line changes, and so it looks like it's rotating. But it's just, it's just a bright object that's in the field of view. It's not, it's not a, a, a ship or anything like that. So there, there are very good explanations for just about all of them that, I, that I've seen. And, and the exact explanation would depend on the, the situation. I spend a lot of time outside at night, and I've seen a lot of cool stuff, uh, but nothing that that made me think of an alien spaceship. They're all, they're all natural phenomena or man-made phenomena. Thanks. Yep. Hi, Dr. Lark. Hi. Um, is there a difference between a dichotomy, a bifurcation, I think that's the word you use, right? Mm -hmm. Bifurcation and a false dilemma? So bifurcation and false dilemma are the same thing. Okay. Uh, a dichotomy can be true. There can be a true dicho dichotomy, two, two things, you know, two options. Sometimes there are genuine, genuinely only two options. 
And so it's not a problem if it's genuine. But when you state that there are only two options, when in fact there's a third option, or when the two are not mutually exclusive, then it's a false dichotomy or a bifurcation fallacy, also called the either-or fallacy, the black-and-white fallacy. It has a number of names. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Hold on. I'm not this tall. First of all, sorry, I lost my voice yesterday, so okay. bear it's with right. me. <laughs> Um, how would you answer this question? I got, ans I got asked this in my freshman year of college. Um, a guy came up to me, a doctor at UPenn or some kind of very well-known hospital in the city, and asked, um, how is it a perfect God can create his creation to be so damageable, to be so um, filled with disease, um, you know, random causes of, you know, failure to his own perfect creation being a perfect God. Mm -hmm. um, so my natural instinct and inclination was sin. That wasn't his intended purpose. Um, so how do you combat somebody like that? Because then it went into like, oh, well, that's, that's you know, Bible talk. That's, that's religion yeah. talk. <laughs> so how do, you get into, how do you get into like a logical debate with somebody who's very much, you know, I'm talking from a science perspective. You're talking sure. from a faith per, uh, perspective. Yeah, what I would say then is, yeah, but science is predicated on the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. The reason we can do science is because the Bible's true. God upholds his universe in a consistent way. He's promised us certain cycles in nature, like this, the seasons, day and night cycle, that's promised in Genesis 8.22 mm -hmm. by the only being who actually knows what the future is going to be because he's beyond time. Mm -hmm. And so we can bank on that. We can, we can say there are cycles in nature. Science is predicated on the Christian worldview, which is why just about every major field of science was founded by Christians. So that's the answer to that. So, yeah, so, but the, he's asking a theological question, though. Mm -hmm. And so it, that, that needs to be a theological answer, and, the, and you answered it correctly. Sin entered the world. So he didn't mm -hmm. get to chapter 3 even before he decided the Bible was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. God created the perfect world, and it will be again. But uh, when, and God told us what would happen when Adam sinned. And frankly, the body is amazingly robust. I mean, you know, you get a scratch or something, and, and, and you know, then it's gone. Mm -hmm. I, does your car do that? I mean, we're way better designed than that, right? I mean, you, you spend millions of dollars getting a scratch out of your car, but in the body, it just heals. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. I mean, we're not indestructible, but mm -hmm. even, even in our fallen state, mm -hmm. it is amazing how robust the human body is and how it's able to heal itself, to protect itself from disease. Oh, it's just, you're, you know how complicated your immune system is? Oh, my, oh, my, it's, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. You can inject almost anything in there, and your, Bible, your, your, your body knows how to deal with it and counter it. it so we're very well constructed, and the fact that there is, there's disease in the world is because God is giving us a small taste of what we asked for. Mm -hmm. So if he says, well, you know, don't give me a theological answer, then say, well, then stop asking a theological question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I have two questions. Uh, the sons of God in Genesis, mm -hmm. were they fallen angels? I don't think so. Hebrews uh, 1.5 says that... Uh, um, God makes the, the author of Hebrews makes an argument that that Jesus is superior to the angels, and one of the, one of the arguments in verse five is that uh, Jesus is called the Son of God. There's a father-son relationship, and God doesn't have that with the angels; they're created beings. Now, we, by the spirit of adoption, have that relationship with God, which is a tremendous honor. But angels don't. So, I think the sons of God. We cer certainly in the New Testament, sons of God is, replies to believers, and I think that's also true in the Old Testament. So I think, I think the sons of God, for example, in Genesis 6, I think those were uh, believers that were marrying unbelievers, and the result was they fell away from, the, the offspring fell away from the faith. Okay, I see. And how about uh, climate change? Mm -hmm. Is there evidence for that? Or is okay, that... climate change. The climate 
The climate changes from time to time. We think the climate was quite different before the flood. We think it was kind of a subtropical um, climate almost everywhere. So uh, the climate does change a little bit. We think there was an ice age that happened after the flood. A lot of misunderstandings about that, but we, it, the, it's the flood that caused the ice age. Right. It's the secularists that can't account for the mechanism of it. We've got a great mechanism for it. Um, and then even today, it varies a little bit. There was a period, we think around 1000 AD, where the earth was a little warmer than it is now. There was a period in the uh, late 1600s where the earth was a little cooler than it is now. They call it the Little Ice Age. Uh, so the earth, you know, it, does, it does fluctuate a little bit. And it's natural. We'd expect that. So are human beings causing a great deal of climate change? I don't think there's any good evidence for that. People say, well, you know, all this carbon footprint. Carbon dioxide is a mild greenhouse gas. Uh, human beings produce only, what, like 3% of the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. So uh, we're, we're not... We're not having much to do with that. Water vapor is far more effective as a greenhouse ga gas than carbon dioxide. So I don't think human beings are... Ha so all these programs to reduce your carbon footprint are, are very wasteful, actually. They're an example of people not really looking into the actual evidence. And I think most climatologists would agree with that, actually. Uh, the media gets one or two flakes, and then they just run with it. But, yeah, um, that's my view anyway. And the other thing to keep in mind uh, for people who are concerned about climate change or catastrophic climate change. You know, they don't call it global warming anymore. You know why? Because mm -hmm. there's right. been no evidence of that for the last 20 years. So um, in any case, climate change, that way no matter what happens, they can say we were right. Uh, but um, the Bible promises that, that runaway climate change cannot happen. Genesis 8.22, God says, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, day and night, cold and heat will remain. That means the seasons will always be there. There's always going to be a harvest, you know, seed time and a harvest. And so that eliminates any kind of catastrophic global warming. Right. Great, thanks. Sure. Yeah. Hello. Um, I have a question regarding the uh, ultimate proof of creation. Okay. It's, you basically state it like um, there is no other um, worldview that can perfectly base logic and reasoning, right? Mm -hmm. So can't you, can't technically Islam or, well, of course, Judaism both uh, also justify it because they both have a transcendent being? Gotcha. The answer is no, because it has to be the biblical God. The theological answer to your question is Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, not the fear of a conception of deity, the fear of Yahweh. It has to be the biblical God. Now, I would argue that modern Jews who reject Christ, they're rejecting Yahweh, right? Because Jesus is Yahweh. He is Lord. And, um, of course, Muslims reject the Trinity, and therefore they're rejecting the true God as well. I mean, they, they think that Allah is the God of the Old Testament, but it's, it's Yahweh who is the God of the Old Testament, so they're rejecting that. Now, in terms of philosophically, why that doesn't work? Well, um, Allah, if he's the inspiration for the Quran, he can't be the source of laws of logic because the Quran does contradict itself. It endorses the gospel of Jesus, but then it contradicts the gospel of Jesus, saying that he wasn't actually crucified, but we were made to think that he was. So if you're endorsing, what would you contradict? That's not going to work. It can't be the, he can't be the basis for logic. Um, I, I, there, are other, there are other issues, too, in terms of the conception of Allah that we, we could go into, but that gives you kind of a, a basic a pathway to that argument. And to the same extent, you know, again, the modern Jews, and it, do they have the right God in a sense? But if they've rejected Christ, then they're rejecting the biblical God because Christ is the biblical God. So that's, that's a brief answer, I know. Uh, if you want a more detailed answer, uh, Dr. Bonson did a, a wonderful series. It's, it's, it's put out, one of, the, one of the best, he's done several. One of the best ones um, is produced, it's produced by the, uh, what's the, um, 
is it American Vision. American Vision produces it. It's a 12 CD or maybe 14 CD set um, of defending the Christian faith by Greg Bonson. And he goes into uh, Islam and, and other religions too and, and shows you that, yeah, they can't make sense of these preconditions of intelligibility either. Okay? Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe we can just end with this one. Is there anything you're reading right now or any of your colleagues are working on that you find particularly interesting or would be helpful for us to kind of track or uh, just, you know, in the future, things that might be really cool? That I'm reading right now. There's a book that I'm reading right now, but I'm not going to say what it is. <laughs> There's certain issues I don't get into, and it's one of those issues that I just don't get into. Um, in turn, but other books that I would recommend, a book that I would highly recommend, anything by Greg Bonson is wonderful. That doesn't mean I agree with him on every single issue, but, but um, his apologetics work, his, his book, um, Always Ready, is fantastic. He, he's got, um, it's interesting, they've taken, he's got new books out. He, he, he passed away in 1995. Uh, but he's got so much audio material, a lot of that's been transcribed, and so he's produced more books after he died than I have, I think, while I'm alive, which is kind of amazing, and it's a blessing. Uh, I think it's um, the impos- maybe the, po- the Impossibility of the Contrary is the name of the book, perhaps. But um, anyway, anything by Greg Bonson is really, it, it's really blessed me, and so I would encourage you to get that. And also, his, his, if you don't like the book format, fortunately, most of Bonson's sermons were recorded, and they have recently been purchased and put into the public domain for your enjoyment. So they are now on Sermon Audio for free under the Bonson Project. B-A-H-N-S-E-N. The guy had a, he was a brilliant scholar and had a heart for Jesus. And sometimes those things don't go together. Sometimes people that are very intelligent, they, they think they know better than God. Uh, and Bonson wasn't that way. I, I want to be him when I grow up, basically. So I would highly encourage you to get, to get any of his material. Okay? All right. Thank you very much. God bless.